This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 18 A Visit from the Governor. The Wednesday of the following week, I was at the theatre in Warrington, sitting in the dressing room with my magician's moustache stuck on my upper lip and a bottle of scotch hanging by the neck from my listless hand. I supposed the others were watching the first half acts. I didn't know, and I didn't care. Has anybody here seen Tilly? T-I-L-L-Y. Kelly, not Tilly it was, of course, in the original. Kelly from the Isle of Man. That's one of the old songs you do still hear about the place. She's as bad as old Antonio. She's left me on me onio. Round and round I went, drunkenly murmuring that daft ditty to myself, wondering if I'd done the right thing. Were my prospects with Carno really so rosy? Should I not have put Tilly first? I saw the hurt in her eyes when she realised that she was returning to London alone. I already missed those eyes. Ah, young Dando, as I live and breathe, said a jolly voice from the doorway, snapping me out of my melancholy naval contemplation. Who should it be but Alf Reeves, whom I hadn't clapped eyes on for a good few months? What ho, Alf, I sighed, half-heartedly affecting the posh dude greeting that we were all using back then as a sort of in-joke, made us sound quite foolish to bystanders and passers-by, I've no doubt, and to Alf, I suddenly realised, as he'd been in the States and wasn't in on the gag. How's America? I asked quickly, to try and wipe the puzzled expression from his features. Oh, Arthur lad, he replied, nuggets of gold the size of your fists just lying round on the pavements over there. My eyes must have widened because he shook his head in pity. "'America,' I said. "'Land of opportunity, isn't that right, Alf?' "'That's right,' he agreed. "'If you want the opportunity to get robbed or shot.' "'Hello. What's this?' I said. "'Oh, you really shouldn't have.' Alf was clutching in his paws what looked like half a dozen bunches of assorted and colourful blooms. "'Oh, yes. Uh, what?' he spluttered in momentary confusion. "'Oh, the flowers, yes. For the ladies. And the ladies' dressing room, of course. Which would be...' Along to the end and left, I said. "'Are they perhaps for one lucky girl in particular?' "'Oh, well, one could hardly bring flowers for one and not all the others too. Good one!' Uh, he blustered. I knew perfectly well that he was drawn there by the chance to see little Amy Minister, to whom we all knew he'd taken a shine, and I hoped the path of romance would be smoother for him than it was for me. "'So the governor's in tonight?' I asked, and Alf slapped himself on the forehead. "'Oh, I wasn't supposed to say, was I? Never mind. Make it a good un, all right?' He shrugged the bunches of flowers in his arms, grinned and disappeared. Performing was the very last thing I felt like doing just then, I'd hardly slept since the weekend, not only because of the devastation of breaking with Tilly, but also because Sid and George had gone out of their way to find me the least hospitable digs imaginable, miles from the theatre and with a ten o'clock curfew, worse than useless for a theatrical. I'd spent the last three nights in a costume hamper right there in the dressing room, which had given me a coating of dust on the roof of my mouth that the scotch simply couldn't shift. The interval drew close, 
and the time when all Carno hands would be turned to assembling our set, our fake theatre boxes and whatnot behind the tabs. Suddenly there was an almighty kerfuffle in the corridor, and George, red in the face and dabbing a flop sweat from his big red forehead with a big red hanky, was shoving Carno personnel into the room for all he was worth. In came the glee club, the terrible turkey, the naughty boy, the aunt, the flappers, the supers and all, baffled and bewildered, and George held both his arms above his head for quiet. "'Listen, everyone, listen. Terrible thing, just terrible!' he gasped, trying to get his breath back. "'Whatever is it, Mr Craig?' one of the girls asked. "'It's Sid, Sidney, Mr Chaplin. He's terrible poorly all of a sudden, green to the gills and limp as a wet rag. Mustn't be moved from his hotel room!' George seemed to feel faint at the thought of it, and sat heavily in a chair, which had the effect of making him suddenly invisible in the crowded room. A murmur went around, confused and concerned in roughly equal measure. What on earth was wrong with the man? Whatever it was, it sounded awfully serious. The pressing point, however, everyone realised at once, was what was to be done about the performance that evening? No Fred Carno company worth its salt would ever scratch a show, even without its leading performer. Jimmy Russell and Johnny Doyle were the number two stars, both had played the swell before, and they got their heads together quickly and practically. No, gentlemen, George interrupted firmly, the solution has been decided upon by Sid himself from his sick bed. A pause perfectly honed by the old ham's many years on the boards, then his brother will stand in for him. As one, the company gasped. Russell and Doyle both opened and shut their mouths wordlessly, as though trying to work out whether to be offended or relieved. For the rest of us, it was the most exciting thing that had happened for weeks, and when Charlie himself stepped into the room, timing perfect, already clad in his brother's costume, and suddenly reeled about, drunk against the jamb of the door, it was almost too much for us to take in. "'Come along, come along, the set won't assemble itself!' The room emptied briskly with an accompanying hubbub of chatter, and Charlie slipped over to a mirror to add a finishing touch or two. I slid along next to him, and saw he was trembling feverishly with excitement, as he applied some black to his eyelids. Not a time to be trembling, by the way. "'You're taking over from Sid,' I hissed. "'You know Carno's in?' "'Of course I do,' he whispered out of the side of his mouth. "'Do you know what you're doing?' He turned and faced me, his purple eyes boring into my skull. "'Listen, Arthur, I've been a supporting player for well over a year. Sid was a number one in three months, you know. "'It's time I stepped up. I'm going to show him. "'The governor, I mean. Show him I'm up to it.' His concentration was frightening, and the audacity of it fairly took my breath away. "'So Sid is—' I managed. "'Fine, he's fine,' Charlie hissed. "'It wasn't hard to put the fear of God into old George. "'Bit of green makeup we borrowed from that girl who sings the song about the frog prince, "'and a hot water bottle under the pillow.' "'I whistled. "'Well, the best of British luck,' I said, "'as you would to a man facing a firing squad. <laughs> "'Needless to say, he did brilliantly. "'In my opinion, Mumming Birds that night was better than it had ever been.' The amount of adrenaline pumping around that stage has rarely been surpassed in the history of British theatre, I dare say. It certainly cleared the cobwebs from my head. Charlie's drunken swell was everything that Sid's had been and more. The falls were breathtaking, the timing heart-stopping, the audience in helpless paroxysms of joy. Of course, at bottom, it was a pitch-perfect imitation of Sid's performance, but with a fluency and virtuosity laid on top of every move and gesture that Sid himself would cheerfully have killed for. For my own segment of the act, the faulty magician's turn, well, it was the purest pleasure. Playing it opposite Sid, more often than not, was like a wrestling match, struggling to get my best moments out before he trampled all over them. With Charlie that night, it was, I don't know, it was as if we saw into each other's minds, and each had a share in controlling the other's actions. His movements dovetailed so perfectly with my own, and the timing was so exhilaratingly immaculate, 
that I felt I had time to just look out into the audience and watch them enjoying us. This was the power in action, all right, and we both knew it. Afterwards, the backslapping and congratulations were so enthusiastic that the stage manager had to come round and hush us all up as there were still acts trying to follow in our footsteps. We quickly stripped off our costumes and packed away our paraphernalia and then adjourned to the pub next door. Most of us were a little overwhelmed, I think. Bert Darnley, who'd been seething mutinously at Charlie since being supplanted as the Yukon poet, was clapping him on the back and buying him a drink. George Craig slumped in the corner, positively smelling of relief. The three girls, Amy, Dolly and Sarah, chatted away at Charlie's elbows. Obviously two of them were having to share an elbow. Even the seasoned veteran Johnny Doyle was falling over himself to propose a toast and predict the brightest of futures for the younger chaplain. I was reflecting to myself, as I began to calm down from the thrill of it all, that if Charlie and I were indeed rivals, then he'd surely stolen a march on me that evening. Most of my thoughts, though, were elsewhere. Has anybody here seen Tilly? T-I-L-L-Y... Finally, that familiar, dapper little figure pushed through the pub doors and Carno was amongst us. He glanced around the establishment with the air of a man who very rarely set foot in such a place and then came over to our group, which hushed and spread open to admit him. A little cough. First of all, a good evening to you all, the governor began, receiving a murmured good evening in reply. Another trademark little cough. And Carno continued. Well now, I've seen heaven knows how many performances of mummingbirds in the past five years, and I have to say, and I don't say this lightly, you could feel the whole company tense as he held the moment. Charlie held his head high, trying hard not to beam with self-satisfaction. I have to say, <coughs> that that were the finest rendition of The Magician that I have yet seen. He nodded at me and said, Arthur. With that, Carno turned on his heel and left. There were gasps. Everyone looked at me as though I'd done something unspeakable, but I was just as stunned as they were. Then Charlie crumpled like a man whose skeleton had just been removed. Solicitor's hands helped him to a chair, where Amy undid the top button of his shirt and loosened his tie. George peered closely at Charlie's bloodless face and pressed a palm anxiously to his forehead. I hope to God he hasn't got what Sid's got, he said. You wouldn't have wanted to spend much time with Charlie for the next few days, weeks even. He sank into a black depression, and it was all we could do to get a grunt of greeting from him for many a moon. Sid was dreadfully worried. Charlie only became animated on stage. He'd reverted to the naughty boy role after his single night in the lead, and to look at him during the act, you'd think he was his old self. But once the curtain went down, the oranges or buns or whatever missiles it was he was flinging about would drop from his nerveless fingers, and he'd slope off to his hotel room to wallow in more misery. He was laying it on a bit thick, we all agreed. We'd all seen Carno cut him down to size on the night of his visit, and we all thought it was mightily unfair, to be sure. Unlike hapless old George Craig, the governor had seen clean through the subterfuge of Sid's illness. He knew Sid would certainly have painted his face green if he'd thought it would have advanced Charlie's career. The governor, quite simply, didn't like being led by the nose, and he decided to stamp his immaculately shod foot down. I had troubles of my own. Every town we went to seemed grimmer and greyer than the one before it, and I could not wait for the tour to be over so we could get back to London and I could try and patch things up with Tilly. Has anybody here seen Tilly? T-I-L-L-Y. I wrote letters to her, of course, but the trouble was I really hadn't a clue where to send them. It hadn't occurred to us that we would need to know addresses when we were spending all our time together on the tour, but when she left without saying goodbye, I realised I had no idea how to get in touch with her to apologise or explain... 
Then one evening I was sitting in a corner of the dressing room writing another plea for forgiveness when Amy Minister popped her head round the door. "'Writing to Tilly?' she asked brightly. "'I've just been doing that.' "'Really?' I said. Then a thunderbolt of a notion struck me. "'I'll post it for you if you like.' "'Ho-ho!' Amy laughed. "'You just want to see what I've written about you.' "'I don't. I mean, I don't want to read it,' I said, although actually I wouldn't have minded having a quick peek. "'I was just going to slip out and post this in a minute, and I'll take yours too if you'd like.' Amy saw the sense in that, and skipped off to fetch her letter to Tilly. A few minutes later it was in my hand, and yes, glory be, there was an address on the envelope, which must be her lodgings near to Finsbury Park in London. I committed it to memory, as well as to my own envelope, and spent the next day or two with a lighter heart, waiting for the reply. Nothing had come, though, by the end of the week, and there was nothing the next week at Burnley, either. I told myself that she would maybe have sent a reply to Clara and Charlie Bell's house in Streatham, in case the post missed me at the theatres. She could have sent a wire, though. Maybe I should send a wire. Finally, after a spectacularly miserable week at the Argyll in Birkenhead, we were done, and the whole company headed south on the train to the capital at last. I found myself sitting opposite Charlie for the journey. He was still making a meal of his great disappointment, unshaven, no collar to his shirt, staring out of the window at the rain, lost in his own little world. It suited me, as I was not in the mood for conversation either. After we'd been rattling along for a little while, however, I suddenly realised that Charlie was looking at me. "'You'll be looking forward to seeing that girl of yours, I expect,' he said. I smiled wanly. I was indeed thinking about seeing her, but had no idea whether she would want to see me. "'It was unforgivable, don't you think? You must think so.' "'Yes,' I said, Sid's face uttering the phrase moral turpitude springing immediately to mind. "'Carno's behaviour that night in Warrington, to humiliate me so, in front of everyone.' "'Well,' I said, "'perhaps you pushed your luck a bit, you and Sid.' "'It was devastating what he said, though, devastating.' "'Oh, I don't know,' I said. "'He said I was the best magician he'd seen in five years of watching the act.' "'Charlie snorted. "'Oh, well, obviously he was only saying that to get at me, wasn't he?' "'Oh, was that so?' I bristled. "'Yes, yes, yes,' Charlie waved a hand dismissively. "'He knew that would be the surest way to drive the dagger home.' "'Why's that?' "'Because he's set us against one another, hasn't he? "'Cooked up this, this ridiculous rivalry. "'Why, if it wasn't for that, of course, I would never have...' <sighs> "'He caught himself short and turned to look out of the window again.' I was puzzled, naturally, and after a moment I pressed him. Would never have... what? Nothing. Nothing. Listen, Charlie, the governor's no fool. He knows what he saw that night, and he'll give you a chance. You wait and see. Well, maybe I don't want to wait for him to give me my chance. You know, Arthur, I've been giving serious consideration to leaving Carnos altogether. I goggled at this. You'd leave? To do what? I could work... Charlie pouted. I always found work before, and in any case, I've been considering a single act. No wonder he'd been depressed. I remembered the solo turn he'd done at Forrester's. You'd be a damned fool, I said vehemently. Where are you going to find the chances you get with the governor, the scenes, the settings, the scale, and always top of the bill? I know he's capricious, and you mustn't get on the wrong side of him, but he's an absolute genius, no one to match him. Charlie grunted. Yes, well, anyway... I didn't say I was going to do it, just that I've been considering it. I've been thinking about things a lot. No kidding, I thought. Charlie smiled and sat back in his seat, and a serenity settled on him that seemed to wash away the self-doubt and torment of the past few weeks. At that moment, the sun came out from behind a cloud, as if in perfect synchronisation with his mood. Say what you like about Charlie, he had timing. And you know what I realised, Arthur? Do you? I should stay, you're right, I should stay. Bide my time, work my way up, as long as it takes. One day I'm going to have that little bastard over a barrel, and I'm going to make him grovel. (laughs) 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Chapter 19. Beside the Seaside As I made my way back to Streatham, I couldn't help feeling a little flutter of anticipation. Little Edie Bell, still clutching Miss Churchhouse to her chest, was pleased to see me in one piece. She'd picked up enough snippets of conversation about the unfortunate Ronnie Marston to imagine that I was doing dangerous work from which I might not return. When I got a little time to myself to think, I realised I had set a lot of store by there being a letter from Tilly, but there was nothing. Now I had to put my mind to what to do next. A little carefully reasoned detective work was called for, I thought, in the style of Mr Sherlock Holmes of the Strand magazine, so on my next free morning I smartened myself up and took the tram from Streatham to the West End, walking the last stretch up to Finsbury Park to save myself a few pennies. I found Tilly's address easily enough, a terraced house in a residential street, but I didn't knock right away. I needed to walk up and down the street for a while, preparing for what I was going to say and taking deep breaths. Has anybody here seen Tilly? T-I-L-L-Y. When my knock on the door was finally answered, it was by a careworn landlady, hair hidden by a knotted scarf, traces of flour on her apron, who crossed her arms at the sight of me in my Sunday best, pursed her lips, and then said, "'Which one of them have you come for, then?' "'Good morning,' I said. "'I wonder if I might speak with Miss Beckett.' "'Remind me,' she frowned. "'Um, around this height,' I showed with my hand. "'Fair hair, blue eyes.' First name of Tilly, uh, that is Matilda. No, the landlady shook her head firmly. No Tillys or Matildas currently. I've got an Annie, a Louisa, a Mary who calls herself Marie, and two Elsies. Dancers, the lot of them. So they says, anyway. She started to close the front door, and I quickly interjected. Please? She paused, raised an eyebrow inquisitively. She was staying here a little while ago, I'm sure. Can you remember if she said where she was going, or, or what she was going to do? Wait a minute. I could almost see the cogs whirring round. Beckett, you say? Matilda Beckett? Now that do ring a bell. Going to see her, are you? I hope so, I said. Wait here, she said, and disappeared into the back of the house. I allowed myself to hope she was fetching a forwarding address, but no. When she returned, she thrust some letters into my hand and said, Give her these when you see her. There's a good lad. The door shut. I looked at the letters. Two from Amy Minister and three from me. Now I was out of ideas. 
I had a little time to kill, so I wandered down to the corner to see if I could find Tilly amongst the lingering unemployed, but no joy. Mr Holmes would doubtless have had some bright notion at this point, but I had nothing. On the Saturday I found myself, as usual when in London, in the Enterprise for pay night, looking hopefully out of the window at the milling crowd of supers over at the fun factory. So Tilly had left her lodgings, but that didn't necessarily mean she hadn't found work in the Carnot organisation somewhere. It would have been a step down to go back to super work, no doubt, but it was a possibility, surely. Suddenly there were raised voices, and the most terrible commotion from over by the governor's corner. A familiar portly figure pushed his way through the crowd, pop-eyed and red in the face. He banged the outside door open furiously with a heel of his hand, and disappeared into the night. George Craig. "'What happened?' I whispered to Bert Darnley. "'Sacked!' Bert hissed. "'That business up in Middlesbrough, remember? When that Jefferson mob pinched our top billing?' The governor said he should never have stood for it, should have gotten to back down. I glanced around and caught sight of Lily Craig, George's wife. She was as stunned as everyone else by this development, and let out a melodramatic wail. George! Maybe it was this exhibition of the governor's ruthlessness, or this indication that nothing that occurred within his empire escaped his notice, but when it was my turn to collect my pay, I felt a sudden, overwhelming urge to demonstrate my own loyalty. I didn't know whether he knew about me and Tilly, but the thought that he might was making my heart race, so when he handed me my packet I found myself blurting out. In Glasgow I was approached by Wal Pink, Governor. Carno looked piercingly up at me from behind his fold-up table. Was you now? He means to bring you down, I said. Carno nodded slowly. Thank you for telling me, Arthur, he said, but don't fret. The matter is in hand. I left him then and went back to my pint of ale with the blood pounding in my temples. I didn't think I had surprised him at all, and so it was clearly the right thing to have done. I might even have done myself a good turn, and if the governor knew about his rival's plans, then I didn't give much for their chances of success. I glanced over at the fun factory. Freddy Jr. would be there, of course, with the ledger and his fold-out desk, and it crossed my mind to see what he knew of Tilly, if anything. Not there, though, and not at that moment. I was still shaking. The opportunity presented itself by and by. I contrived to bump into Freddy in Streatham as he arrived at the house next door. "'What ho, Arthur!' said Freddy. He was really desperate to be one of us, poor fellow. "'Freddy,' I said, "'I'm glad to have a chance to speak to you. There's something I need to clear up. You remember Tilly?' "'Your wife, of course. She was pleased to be sent to your company, I expect?' "'Yes, she was. Bit of a sudden promotion from the ranks for her, to be sure. But I dare say she coped well enough, eh? How is she?' "'She's well, as far as I know,' I said. "'The thing is, you see—' and I explained how the misunderstanding had played out, right up to the dressing down I got from Sid, where he accused me of moral turpitude. Freddy laughed fit to bust. Moral turpitude? Did he say that? He did, I assured him, and he said the governor would take a very dim view of it. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm sure he would, Freddy smirked, affecting seriousness and not especially well. The old governor knows all about moral turpitude, of course. Really? Oh, yes, he's a great authority on moral turpitude. He himself is quite turpitudinous, don't you know? In point of fact, the old man, Freddy went on, tears springing from his eyes, often shows exemplary turpitudinousness. My, my, whatever is so funny, a voice said, and I saw that my next-door neighbour was standing in her front doorway, watching us make fools of ourselves. Mama, there you are, Freddy cried. You remember Arthur. Invite him in for tea and we'll tell you all about it. And so I found myself ensconced in the next-door parlour with Freddy while our hostess disappeared below stairs to set a scullery maid to making tea. I leaned over and half-whispered, not wishing to be indelicate. So, Freddy, do I take it, then, that my neighbour is your mother? 
Yes, hadn't you cottoned on to that? Yes, indeed, she is Mrs Carnot. But I met Mrs Carnot at your father's house, at your house. Oh, you met Maria, of course. She's not really a Mrs Carnot. They say she is and all that, but they're not actually married. Mamma is Mrs Carnot, all right, first and only. The old fellow is desperate to divorce, but she's not having any of it. Still loves him, you see, despite everything. Despite what? What do you mean? Oh, <coughs> Freddy coughed, exactly like his father. Never mind about that now. Freddy's mother joined us then, and eagerly pressed me for news of my adventures working for her husband. I told her a little about the Mummingbirds tour, and about the Governor's visit to Warrington to check up on Charlie and me. She hung on my every word, storing up every titbit, particularly about the Governor himself. How did he look? What did he say? What did he wear? He's not told you yet about the thwarting of love's young dream, though, has he? Freddy cut in. I shook my head to warn him not to lead the conversation there, but he ploughed on. It's all right. Mamma won't tell anyone, will you, old thing? And she might get a thrill out of it, eh? So I found myself recounting again the circumstances leading to my travelling as man and wife with Tilly, and sure enough, Mrs Carno was fascinated. She left without a word the next morning, and I've not been able to find any sign of her since. I finished. Freddy looked thoughtful. Well, I haven't seen her at the factory lately. If she's working for the governor, she'll be on the books, though, somewhere. I'll take a squint for you and let you know. How's that? Freddy was as good as his word, and sought me out at the Enterprise on Saturday night. "'Sorry, old man,' he said, clamping his hand to my shoulder sympathetically. "'She ain't on the strength. Not since she was paid off for the mumming birds. Left no word either what she was moving on to. Don't know what to suggest, I'm afraid.' I thanked him, and went to sit alone with my pint for a think. There was still one loose thread nagging away in my mind. Essex. Surely Tilly had said that her father owned a theatre in Southend-on-Sea. If that was where her family home was to be found, maybe a little further sleuthing would uncover a useful lead, even the girl herself. So the very next time I had a day off, which was a little time coming, as the fun factory was more factory than fun just then, I took myself up to Fenchurch Street Station and caught a London Tilbury and South End service to the coast, Mr Holmes pursuing the case of the missing showgirl. The town's theatre, the New Empire it was called, probably still is, sat on a busy road off the main street, flanked by rows of shops, haberdasheries and the like. It boasted an impressive facade that towered above the surrounding buildings. Since I was searching for information, I judged my best bet might be to speak to the stage door chap, maybe stand him a pint, but the stage door was locked and barred. I was stuck then, with the front of house and the bored-looking girl in the box office. "'Good day,' I began, tipping my hat. "'Could I speak to Mr Beckett?' "'I don't know, Mr Beckett,' she replied. This flummoxed me momentarily, having not thought through my interrogation beyond this point, and she went on, "'We have stalls or gallery for this evening, if you'd like to make a purchase?' I saw I would need to push a little harder. The New Empire maybe wasn't a theatre that the Carnot Company frequented, but his name was a thing to be reckoned with nonetheless.' "'I work for Mr Fred Carnot in London,' I said. "'He asked me to speak to Mr Beckett on a matter of some urgency.' "'The girl's demeanour changed at once. "'Oh, I see,' she said. "'Would you wait here a moment?' "'She disappeared into the interior, "'and shortly I was joined in the foyer by a slender fellow, quite bald, "'with a broad smile slapped on his face. "'Good morning,' he oiled. "'I understand you represent Mr Carnot.' "'Indeed,' I said, "'and he's charged me with speaking to Mr Beckett. "'Do I have the pleasure?' "'Oh, dear me, no. I'm the manager. My name is Conquest.' I inclined my head to him and said, "'Dando.' 
I'm very much afraid that we have no knowledge of a Mr Beckett, Conquest said. There is no employee of that name, nor is there any member of the South End on Sea Theatre Company, the owners of this. He wafted his hand around to indicate the premises as he tailed off. This was very puzzling, and I said so. Perhaps there was another theatre in the town, I suggested, but Conquest regretted that there was not. Thwarted, I took my leave and wandered along to the main street. So much for my Sherlock Holmes adventure, I thought. Even Dr Watson would have made a better fist of it. There seemed nothing for it but to return to London none the wiser, but then my eye was taken by a jaunty little fellow bobbing along the street from door to door, delivering the midday post. A Holmesian ploy suggested itself. "'Excuse me,' I said, as the postman approached. "'Would you know the name of Beckett around these parts?' "'Beckett! Beckett!' he said, stopping to scratch his head in a pantomime of man-thinking. I jiggled some coins encouragingly in my pocket, and this seemed to speed the process. "'There's a Beckett back of the Esplanade,' he said, "'which is down to the end here, left, second right, number 34, "'and another up on the hill the other way, next door to a pub called the Lion, "'and another out Prittlewell Way, and you could try...' "'A minute or two later I had quite a few suggestions, "'and he had a shilling he hadn't had before. "'And so, a not inconsiderable expenditure of shoe-leather later, "'I found myself walking up the path of what struck me "'as an unprepossessing little house for a theatre-owner. "'The door was eventually opened to my knock by a middle-aged lady, "'red in the face, not best pleased to be disturbed. "'Good afternoon,' I ventured, raising my hat. "'Who are you?' "'My name is Arthur Dando,' I said. "'I'm trying to find an acquaintance of mine, a Miss Matilda Beckett. "'I wondered if she might perhaps be here.' The woman frowned at me, giving me to understand that this was not likely. "'Who is it, my dear?' said a man's anxious voice from inside the house. "'Is it one of them? Offer him tea, yes, and make him say thank you!' The woman tutted to herself as though this was always happening, and then said, "'Would you like to come in for a cup of tea?' "'Thank you,' I said, at which the woman turned and said to her unseen companion, "'Satisfied?' "'Well, who is he, then?' "'Some friend of Tilly's,' said Mrs Beckett, for so she apparently was, regarding me with suspicion. There was a brisk wrestling match in the narrow hallway, and Mrs Beckett was replaced by a kindly-looking little fellow who smiled owlishly up at me from behind little round spectacles. "'Friend of Tilly's, you say? Gordon Beckett, delighted!' He ushered me into a small parlour where he fussed about, plumping cushions. "'I'm sorry about just now. We have to be careful, you see. But you can always spot them. They don't drink tea, number one. And number two, they can't say thank you. Who can't? I asked. The Germans. They try, of course, but it always comes out, thank you. Sometimes they'll click the heels together too. They just can't help it. So, Mr Beckett said, clapping his hands and sitting forward on his chair, you've news of my Tilly then, have you? Well, as a matter of fact, I said, I was rather hoping you might have. His face fell and he looked into the fire and went silent. Over tea, brought in by Tilly's mother a short while later, I brought them up to date with Tilly's movements, such as I knew them, over recent months. They hadn't heard from her, it appeared, since the previous Christmas, and were anxious for such titbits as I could supply. The name of Fred Carno brought its usual excited reaction. Carno, eh? That's good, though, isn't it? She's fallen on her feet, then, Tilly's father said. Her mother, meanwhile, glowered over a sewing project, which she was working away at with fast, efficient fingers, but she was listening avidly, I could tell. Mrs Beckett was disappointed. Well, we both were, Mr Beckett hurriedly corrected himself as his wife flashed him a glare. When Tilly left, the theatre. It's no sort of life for a young girl, really, is it? It's not respectable. He caught himself then, worried suddenly that he might have offended me, but I nodded for him to continue. There was a young man, you see, here in the town. 
His father is Mr Harrison, who has the ironmongers and is on the council. Could even be the mayor in time, they say. And we were more or less certain that he, that is the son, John, was about to, which is to say he would have, except... She'd have had that ironmongers if she'd only waited, the flighty little piece, Mrs Beckett burst out. Tilly told me you had your own theatre, I said, after an awkward pause. Beckett brightened. Did she say so? Well, young man, indeed I do. Would you like to see it? He'd already jumped to his feet and was reaching for his coat, so I agreed, even though I'd done more than enough walking for one day. We slipped out of the front door and set off down the street into the town. It's quiet at this time. Well, you can see, can't you? So there just aren't the audiences at the moment, but in the summer, oh, you should see the place. Folk come down from London, you know. Oh, yes. We reached the seafront, where one or two people were walking along the esplanade or strolling on the sand. They were well wrapped up, though, as there was a bitter wind whipping in off the sea. "'There she is, young fella, my pride and joy,' Beckett said. I scanned the facades of the buildings, looking for the telltale ostentation of a playhouse, but saw nothing. I glanced at old Beckett, who was looking in the other direction altogether. In fact, he was pointing down onto the sands. I followed his gaze, and there was a red and white striped tent, tall and thin, about seven feet tall. "'This is your theatre? Beckett nodded. "'This is where the magic happens?' "'You're a Punch and Judy man,' I said, the light dawning. "'Man and boy!' Beckett beamed. My girls used to help out, you know, when they were younger. I'd let them stand on a box and have a go sometimes. Not the whole show, you know, but a small part. Tilly were a fearsome crocodile when she were a nipper. Suddenly I understood Tilly's mirth as she'd wiggled her hand in front of my face. It had been a naked Mr Punch. Her father stomped over to the Punch and Judy stand and tested its sturdiness, pushing it from side to side. Well, I should be getting on my way, I said. Beckett suddenly grabbed my arm and pointed out to sea. "'You know what's out there, don't you?' he said urgently, all joviality gone. "'The sea?' "'Beyond the sea!' he hissed. "'What?' I whispered, caught up in his mood. "'Germans!' "'Germans?' "'Germans!' "'Oh, yes, he sees them. "'Who sees them? "'Mr Punch, he sees them. "'He knows what they're up to. "'Ah-ha!' "'When they come, we'll set fire to the pier, Mr Punch and me, "'and they'll be forced to move on down to Margate or somewhere, "'or straight up the Thames, that's what they might do. "'I'm right here, aren't I? I'm Johnny on the spot. "'All that wood, it'll go up like Billy-o.' "'Dad?' "'My heart stopped. "'The voice came from behind us, and it was Tilly's voice, unmistakably so. "'I turned round to see... not Tilly, "'but a kind of worn-out, grey, harassed version of her, "'clutching a small, tear-stained child in one arm "'and manoeuvring a bassinet, "'presumably containing a further infant, with the other. "'Beckett trotted over to relieve her of her burden. "'Hallo, soldier!' he said to the miserable child as he took him, but the boy wanted to know who I was before he even considered the possibility of smiling. "'Alice, this is Mr O'Dandy. He's a friend of Tilly's. Mr O'Dandy, this is Tilly's sister Alice.' I didn't bother to correct him, but simply raised my hat to Tilly's sister, who managed a tired half-smile in return before turning to her father. "'Dad, I'm going to the house to see Mum. Can you come and help me with Thomas?' Beckett addressed his reply to the boy. "'Of course I can. We'll go home and have some toast, shall we? Would you like toast, Tommy?' Alice had already steered her bassinet around and started walking away, evidently too fraught for further social niceties. I suddenly realised why Tilly had been so very determined to avoid inadvertent motherhood and its life-changing implications. "'Thank you for calling by,' Beckett said. "'The station's straight up that road. Can't miss it.' We shook hands, and he held on a moment longer than I was expecting. "'You will tell her when you see her. Just drop a line to your old man, girl.' Of course, I said. And if you get the chance, take it to Wales. 
They won't come there. Will you do that? We'll hold them off as long as we can, Mr Punch and me. I watched them go, then headed forlornly for the station, miserably humming the familiar old tune to myself. Has anybody here seen Tilly? T-I-L-L-Y. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.